I'm Colin from Louisville. Hey, I'm Laurel from London, UK. I'm Patrick from Chicago. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer David Rakoff. His third book, Half Empty, is a collection of essays that are meditations on the darker side of the human psyche. It comes with the warning, uh, no inspirational life lessons will be found in these pages. Uh, But frankly, it sort of betrays that. There are none of the traditional inspirational life lessons. Um, But uh, it is in part at least an argument that one can be inspired and draw life lessons from a little bit of pessimism and melancholy. Uh, David Rakoff, welcome back to The Sound of Young America. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about uh, the story that uh, opens this book, it's the story of you trying to write this magazine article in 2001, um, just about 10 years ago. Um, t- tell, me, tell me about what, what the subject of that article was. Well, the, it's funny. The first chapter was an absolute bear of a piece. It took me essentially nine years to write, uh, on and off. The subject of the article, which was assigned by the New York Times magazine, was there is a psychologist named Julie Norum, and she's at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. And she wrote a book called The Positive Power of Negative Thinking, which is about... And it's a beautiful book. It's really a great bit of science writing, and she's so smart and erudite, and the book just rollicks along. It's a, it's a really terrific book. And it's about a very specific kind of anxiety management technique called defensive pessimism. And most people are born with it to some degree. I mean, there are very few full-on, you know, unnuanced strategic optimists in the world. But defensive pessimists are in the way... They're cousins to dispositional pessimists. They see the world as being perhaps a little more negative than it actually is, like... most pessimists. But what defensive pessimists do is they then take that presentiment of disaster that, you know, this is going to suck kind of premonition, and they take arms against it, and they envision their worst-case scenario coming true. You know, this is going to suck because of A, B, C, and D. And they go through each aspect of suckhood, and they... (laughs) They come up with a, a contingency plan as to what they're going to do to combat that. And it's a means of claiming agency and getting over your anxiety about the world. You know what I mean? It's a means of, in fact, not staying in bed all day. You know, So it's a, kind of an interesting thing. It certainly explained me to myself and it explains most people I know in my circle to themselves. I mean, we all do it to some extent. And certainly it can be argued that I live in New York City, which is a kind of a self-selecting group of people who all do that kind of thing. It's a kind of a darkish, melancholic place. Or it can be, you know, between the Jamba Juices and Nord- Nordstrom rack stores. But, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. But it was also at a time in my life where I was unable to 
tease apart the threads of anxiety and sadness. And while when you test for sadness, you're testing for anxiety, they're emphatically two different things. You can be anxious and happy. At that time in my life, I didn't understand how, and I couldn't tease apart the fragments of the, the, the strands of the science, and so I couldn't write this piece. And so I didn't. I avoided it and avoided it and avoided it, and I kept on uh, just making busy work for myself by interviewing psychologists, one psychologist after another. Every day, I would sort of get on the phone, interview them for two hours, and then spend the rest of the day transcribing the notes. And because I'm a lousy typist, there would be my day. And it felt like a job, and it felt like work. And I was amassing thousands of words of notes, but I wasn't writing the piece. Um, and then finally, on like nine days before the piece was due, I woke up at like 5.30 in the morning to keep transcribing. And then about 8.45, I was going to call uh, Martin Seligman, who is the father of positive psychology and the positive psychology movement. And I was going to interview him. And and I really did need to interview him because I was reading a lot about positive psychology, and it was sort of the flip side to all this um, advocating negative thinking. And at 8.45, I was going to pick up the phone and call him. And the phone was out, and I thought, oh, damn it, you know. And I marched out to the uh, phone booth on the corner, and uh, there in progress already was the worst-case scenario that no defensive pessimist could ever have envisioned. It was that the first tower of the World Trade Center was uh, on fire. It had been hit. And so I never wrote the piece. But it seemed to me that the seeds that it planted you know, that there had to be room at the table for something more than just unbridled optimism. Because remember, you know, before September 11th, it was the midst of the internet boom, you know, here, which was this kind of cloud cuckoo land of just unbridled cargo cult-like optimism. And it was just sort of an ecosystem, a sort of a back-and-forth rain cycle of crap, do you know what I mean? The the finance people were financing these pseudo-creatives to come up with business models that did nothing and they didn't hold water and they were getting money, but the money was all on paper and it didn't exist. Nothing existed. There was this um, optimism-fueled climate of just sort of rah-rah boosterism that didn't seem based in anything tangible to my mind. And so I really did think that it was worth, you know, continuing to inquire about. And certainly after September 11th, when we then waged a war uh, predicated on misinformation and lies, but also optimism, you know, optimism that we could uh, do such a thing financially, that we could do it with uh, one sector of our our population, you know, shouldering the burden, you know, all manner of rosy scenarios that were not, in point of fact, true or real or moral. You know, it seemed that uh, exploring the darker side seemed uh, that much more important to me. So I never sort of lost the need to write the piece, but it was hard for me to do so. You describe this defensive pessimism mindset. And and when you described it in the book, as you said, you know, a lot of folks, you know, identify with it. I identified with it incredibly strongly. And of so, course. so many conversations with, say, my, my more optimistic mom, a great lady, uh, where she gets upset because anytime she brings up a possibility, I think of everything that's wrong with it. And I'm thinking of everything that's wrong with it in, in the hopes that I can deal with it, maybe. Um, but that can also be paralyzing. Um, 
and what paralyzes you? You mean the fact the 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 panoply of things that can go wrong? Or? Yeah, well, I mean, as you just you described it, I think quite reasonably as a way of achieving uh, of getting to a point where you feel some agency over a problem. Yes. Um, but so what, sometimes, yeah. but sometimes, if you don't have an answer to every question, um, you you are you aren't gaining agency. Um, Absolutely true. If you look, if you're already worried about LMNOP, and you, there's no way you can have an answer to those steps when you're still at A, I completely understand feeling that one will drown with the possibilities that, of things that can go wrong. I get I get the impression from uh, from reading the book that this was uh, this was something that you struggled with, um, especially as a as a young adult, uh, trying to get to the point where you could do the creative work that you wanted to do. Yeah, I'm I'm not as crippled by anxiety lately. You know, I'm I'm now forty six. You know, I'm I'm a grown up. I'm not as crippled with anxiety as I was in my 20s, and certainly not as much as I was in my childhood. Um, but yeah, it kept me from it kept me from doing anything for years and years. What do you see uh, as being What do you see as being the difference between someone whose uh, uh, whose negative thinking gives them agency, and someone whose negative thinking uh, uh, paralyzes them in some way? I just think I, I really think that it's a matter of trying, uh, of really counting to ten. I, I, that, that's as best as I can put it. It's just sort of trying to regulate one's breathing, you know, because it's very easy to spin out of control and be the person on the subway uh, who soils themselves, screams, "We're all going to die! We're all going to die!" and then passes out, uh, you know, and then you wake up ten minutes later, you know, on the floor of the subway. With you know, soiled trousers and the subways, of course, moving it, it wasn't going to burst into flames when it stopped in the tunnel the way you thought it was. But you know, you never want to be that guy. And the way not to be that guy is, at best, you know, at, at its most basic level, it's about like regulating your breathing. Like try to breathe in on a count of three and not on a count of point oh oh three. You know, which will just make you hyperventilate and pass out. And there's some comfort to be taken from this, or perhaps not. The person who drowns from anxiety and the person who claims agency from their anxiety and the person who feels no anxiety at all, they're the same person. Do you know what I mean? We're not these warring constituencies of people who have no problems and people who are simply awash in problems. That's just life. You know, life is this incredibly rich and dense and completely mutating, perpetually moving mixture of things. And I guess that's sort of comforting to know. No? It, it is. I mean, it's sort of comforting. Yeah, it's only sort of comforting. I find myself having, frankly, to just back myself up against a wall uh, whenever I can. <laughs> you mean in order to just get moving? Yeah, Oh, me too. Me too. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. I, you're, especially with getting to work, it takes it takes it takes a kind of a panicked, a deeply panicked fear that that's it. 
That's it. You will never accomplish anything again. <laughs> th- th- that's it. You'll never do it again. You won't be able to make a living. You will you will be the guy that people see on the street and they used to know and you've got all your belongings in a pharmacy bag and you never fulfilled your early promise. And guess what? Your early promise wasn't that promising anyway. That was a delusion. You'll never do it again. That goes through my mind hourly. Hourly. And fails to get me in gear 80% of the time. But the panic has to clearly reach ahead of steam for me to actually get into gear. But I, I, for one, I haven't done any proper work for weeks now. Weeks. And it's terrifying to me. The Sound of Young America is coming live to San Francisco and the SF Sketchfest. Catch us on Saturday, January 22nd at 1 p.m. at the Eureka Theater in San Francisco. We'll have music from John Vanderslice, comedy from stand-up comedian Baron Vaughn, and interviews with Bobcat Goldthwaite and Steve Dildarian, the creator of HBO's Life and Times of Tim. That's all January 22nd in San Francisco. For more information and to buy tickets, visit us online at MaximumFun.org and click on the link under Live Shows. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Coverage of the world of comedy on The Sound of Young America is supported by Humber College, offering a two-year program dedicated to comedy. Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funnier. More information at humbercomedy.com. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer David Rakoff. His most recent book about pessimism is called Half Empty. One of the things that that you write really evocatively um, about is your your young adulthood in in New York City, and particularly it, it coming in the context of this this time that I remember very well growing up in, in San Francisco, and I'm, I'm a few years younger than you, but um, I remember very vividly uh, the way that uh, AIDS shaped just life. Sure. Um, and I wonder how you think that dealing with dealing with that environment and also dealing with uh, your own cancer, which which first emerged when you were in your twenties, um, affected your uh, approach to life and doing work when when you were when you were young, specifically at that point in your life. Well, it's interesting. I I went to college in New York City, and I arrived here in 1982. And already we knew that there was something going on. You know, when I was in high school uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, we were hearing news reports. In fact, I remember very specifically one of my best friends um, who was, we, you know, we were very, very close, but she often said sort of just outlandish, stupid things. <laughs> and she said to me, and this was in 1980, she said, have you heard about the gay cancer? And I said, 
don't be ridiculous. And she said, no, 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 it's really true. And they have a spokesperson. Her name is Brandy Alexander. And I just walked away. I was just like, you're just insane. and You're ridiculous. So when I got to New York, I sort of knew about it. You know, it was certainly there. Um, and it was thrumming a bass note. And I certainly had reasons that uh, I won't you know, certainly won't talk about in a public context, but I had reasons uh, of my own to develop a very healthy erotophobia, and it was only enhanced by the fact that there was this thing that was targeting my ostensible, uh, hoped-for, aspired-to community, you know, which is that of a gay guy. I wanted to be a full-fledged gay guy in New York, and I never became the gay guy that I'd sort of thought I'd become in certain aspects. I mean, in terms of grooming and wardrobe. In other aspects, <laughs> in other aspects, I, be, I you know, I, I won't lie, all my dreams came true. But in certain aspects, I didn't. Um, so it was definitely part of that thing. It was definitely a thrumming bass note. Uh, uh, a kind of a terrifying leitmotif. But that is not to say that I didn't you know, sail through college and sort of have a worldview wherein, I don't know, they chalk it up to a certain kind of arrogance. I really thought things might work out for me, you know. And then, you know, I graduated college and I was, I, I had my first bout of cancer. And that really changed the equation for me, or rather changed what I felt entitled to expect from life. And what I felt entitled to expect from life, having, having been laid low by my first bout of illness, was, you know, not much. You know, so that sort of existed as worldview for a long, long time. And for a long, long time, I felt very chastened and kind of reprimanded, you know, by cosmic events. And it took many years for me to sort of get over that. And there's still very much an aspect of that to uh, the way I live my life. You know, I'm... I'm there's a certain kind of sheepish fear that if I get too big for my britches, I will be, uh, and deservedly so, laid low by that's circumstance. Such, that's such a different... I mean, we're so used to hearing stories of people who face life-threatening illness and come out of that illness with some sort of renewed sense of purpose and, and the idea that they should seize every day as it comes rather than feeling rather than feeling like um uh it was it was the universe telling them that they had gotten too big for their britches i know it's not a very healthy it's not a very healthy takeaway and i don't mean to <laughs> and i don't mean to say that it is and and i recognize that it's not um and i suppose part of a creative life is giving oneself permission to be sort of too big for one's britches you know, to swing for those fences in a way and to think that what one has to say is, you know, worth listening to, which is a very arrogant thing to do if you think about it. That certainly strikes me as a kind of an essential part of being able to make things or do things, mm -hmm. accomplish things when, when one is a defensive pessimist. Oh, entirely. Entirely. And I... I will even, on those occasions when I read the stuff that I've written, 
and they aren't many. You know, frequently I, I don't really look back a lot because it's a little, well, it's a little embarrassing. You know, and uh, there's some stuff that I. You know, there was a period where I couldn't read my stuff for years and years. I couldn't read it without cringing. But I do recognize sometimes, even in the things I make, the visual things I make, the little crafty projects, I sometimes see the constricted fear in the writing or in the care and meticulousness with which certain things have been made. And um, it nauseates me <laughs> and it makes me angry with myself and sick sick of myself you um y- your cancer recurred uh, a couple of years ago yeah um and it seems like you you have engaged your illness very differently now uh 15 or so years after your first bout of cancer when you no, write 20 20 plus years between the bouts yeah um when you when you wrote that you you initially um your the first time around you essentially just said to the doctors do what you need to do yeah um which i <laughs> which was dumb since it was the it did, treatment that gave me this second bout do you think that there's any relationship between your ability as an adult to engage so fruitfully with your work and um, the fact that you've been more able to engage uh, your treatment with this second round of cancer? That's interesting. Well, part of it is, you know, there's no one taking care of me. Do you know what I mean? I have to take care of myself. Um... I mean, I have a family, obviously, and they're, you know, they're involved to a, to a certain degree, although, you know, I'm being treated down in New York and they're all in Canada. Um, so there's just a certain, certain you know, day-to-day realities where I'm the one who has to make the decisions. And as such, I have to uh, be engaged in a way that uh, I don't have the option of, of ignoring it in that way. But part of it is, yes, as you say, something that I've learned just by, you know, living my life and getting older, but it is also very much, uh, if you're going to write a book, well, if you're going to write a book, period, you've got to be kind of open to the world of, you know, sensory stimuli if you're going to be, you know remotely descriptive about the world in which we live. Um, So you can't really be asleep at the wheel unless you're going to write something, you know, so spare and so masculine that, you know, I don't know, only 19-year-old boys are going to read it and then they're going to steal it from the bookstores and you're going to have to ask behind the counter to get a copy. (laughs) That's That's not the way that I speak. It's not the way that I write. It's not the way that I move through the world, you know. But if you're going to do that, but if you're going to write a book about how it really behooves you as a human being, as a moral creature, to engage with the world and all its darkness, then I suppose it does sort of prepare you in a way. But that said, I I didn't really want to know about it either. And it's hard to know about. It's hard to look at plain-facedly, you know. But, you know, in the last week alone, I've heard of People with problems so much worse than mine right now. 
you know, which is just part of being alive. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, I'd rather, look, I'd rather not be going through this. I'm not an idiot, you know. I'll do a lot for a good chapter, but I'd <laughs> rather not have done this, obviously. Um, and truthfully, I would have wanted greater book sales, considering. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but that said, there's no profit in, in you know, refusing to look at something. There's just It's just not going to help. Well, David, I, I certainly appreciate you taking the time to come beyond the sound of Young America. It was a, a joy, as always. Thank you, sir. And it was lovely to be here again. David Rakoff's new book is half empty. And despite its warning that no inspirational life lessons are to be found in its pages, I found it quite inspirational. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music is provided by Dan Wally. The show is edited by Nick White. Julia Smith is our producer. Our development director is Teresa Thorne. And our intern, gosh, I guess probably as this airs departing, is Leo Portugal. Bye, Leo. Thank you. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can download all of our programs for free. And our newest show, Judge John Hodgman, in which author and minor television personality John Hodgman settles the petty personal disputes of people across this great nation. It's all at MaximumFun.org. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me, jesse at MaximumFun.org, or post them in our forums at forum.maximumfun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.